John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This is the word of the Lord. Before we introduce our speaker tonight, just one other announcement. This has become a a tradition for us annually. On uh, the eve of Pentecost at 7 p.m. in the chapel, we just have a little service where we look at some scriptures about the filling of the Holy Spirit and Pentecost, and then... uh, and then I pray for anybody that wants to be prayed for, for the filling of the Spirit. So if you would like to come to that, please do. The uh, summer of 1981 was uh, the best one of my life. Uh, first reason is I met a beautiful brunette named Sandy McNeil, who became my wife. The second was we were at a, a, a Campus Crusade for Christ summer project in Wildwood, New Jersey. That's a campus Christian ministry called Crew now. And there were some phenomenal leaders on the project that summer. Gary and Sue Stratton were our favorite, and we fell in love with them. And then, as life happens, lost touch with them until 25 years later, I got a phone call from Gary, who said, hey, I'm now the dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at Johnson University. Let's have lunch. And so we rebirthed our relationship. Gary and Sue have, uh, Sue is also a professor of Old Testament at, uh, at Johnson, And Gary has been a pastor in Hollywood, California, to the people in the entertainment industry. Uh, He's had professorships at Gordon and Wheaton and Bethel and all sorts of places along the road. He's finishing a book right now on Jonathan Edwards as a scholar on spiritual awakening. He's the one who led the seminar on awakening that I kept mentioning during during Lent. So, brother, I love you, and I'm glad you're here. Well, good evening. Good to be with you all again. We love spending time with all souls. You're our, our uh, glorious taste of liturgy and our home away from home. Uh, it has been fun to maintain this relationship through the years uh, with Doug and Sandy. Uh, I was just out of college. Sue and I were just out of college. Doug was still in college, a uh, squirrely little Northwestern student. And one of the other guys in the and this Bible study that I was leading that he was in had this friend named Sandy that he just wanted to hook Doug up with. And that was the greatest thing that Dan ever did for any of us. It has really been fun to be listening to these messages that um, Doug has been doing. Uh, this is, I guess, the fourth of five messages over six weeks of the Easter season, uh, getting ready for Pentecost Sunday on June 9th. Uh, Doug's been looking at these. Uh, I've learned a lot uh, looking at the what the Great Commission means, his call for us to go in Matthew and Mark and Luke. Uh, and he charged me tonight to talk with you on the text we looked at now in John. Now, those of you who know something about 
the Gospels uh, know that there are four, duh, obvious one, obvious, but that the first three are different than the fourth. Uh, matter of fact, they are so similar that they're often called the synoptic, which is just a fancy way of saying the same view of Jesus, because they all have basically the same spine of the story, though there's a lot, there's differences and variations and things. They, they look a lot alike. Uh, and as Doug mentioned, the, the Great Commission, though there's different details, there, there's a lot of the same elements that exist in each one of the four. Uh, that there is uh, Jesus, uh, some reassurance of them, some calling to be go and to, be, to engage, some sense of what the mission is that they're actually called to. And that's pretty consistent throughout the thing. Then you get to John. John is similar in a lot of ways as we look into it, but it's also got something of a curveball in it. Uh, and this uh, was thinking and praying through this text this week, and I have spent, this is the irony of it, I probably spent more time studying this text than any text in the Gospels other than maybe John chapter 4, because I've been so puzzled by something that uh, we'll talk about, that it will come to in a minute, uh, that is just one of the great conundrums of the New Testament. So do you want to just kind of jump into it and I'll kind of walk through it, and then we'll uh, kind of come to the crux and then how that crux might or might not apply to us. Um, it starts by telling us on the first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. I mean, it starts with the same context you've got in all the other Gospels of the sphere of persecution of the Jews. The, the disciples have been... Uh, had their entire lives just ripped apart. They'd been following for three and a half years, putting aside the relationships with family and with businesses to be part of this man that they thought was God's Messiah who was going to throw off the bondage of Rome and usher in the kingdom of God upon the earth of peace and righteousness and healing and judgment and justice to the nations. And instead they watch him die a gruesome and public death. And to make matters worse, on the third day, somebody apparently has robbed the tomb. So now the tomb that he was in is, is gone. They can't even go turn it into a shrine to remember his martyrdom. And then to make matters worse, a woman, a woman, Mary Magdalene, a woman of, you know, this woman had seven demons in her. Can you really trust this person? Has coming and saying that she's seen Christ and he somehow cheated death. So is it understandable that they're kind of messed up at this? I mean, we've got all this post-resurrection creeds that we've developed what this means. But when they're going through it, they have no idea what it means. They have no story, no meta-narrative to hold it together. But Jesus gives them exactly what they need. First, he gives them the reassurance of his love. Peace be with you. Despite their rather, shall we call it, poor showing in their promise attempts to stick with him to the end. Is that a kind way to say it? Not cool, not cool, I guess is the best way to say it. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. That must have meant an awful lot to them. His physical presence, the other gospel writers make a big deal out of how he just suddenly appeared in the room like he didn't actually come, have to come through. A, he came through a locked door. Uh, John just kind of lets that go. Uh, as something that was kind of obvious, duh. And then second, he grants them the tangible assurance of his physical presence. 
And he, after he'd said this, peace be with you, just to show them that he wasn't some aberration, that he wasn't, as Doug said, that it wasn't spiritual, he wasn't just a spiritual body, he showed them his hands and his sides. And they, they touched them and see them. We assume that they did just what Thomas did a little bit later in this chapter, where he's just like, they're getting down and poking and pushing, and oh my gosh, this really is you. This really did happen. I, I have no idea how it happened, but it did. And not surprisingly, the shock of it all soon lends to this tremendous rejoicing. I mean, would you not be rejoicing? Okay, Game of Thrones fans? How many? Go ahead, admit it. Good for the soul, bad for the reputation. Okay, so... Uh, this is not a total spoiler alert, a little bit of one, but there's this moment a couple episodes ago but when the show is still good. Um, <laughs> when you just, the, the world was coming to an end, the Night King was coming to bring an end to everything. It's this beautiful music, it's all about to end, and he's pulling out his knife to kind of end the memory of man, and suddenly, out of nowhere, out of the top of the picture comes Arya. And <clears throat> the Night King just grabs her by the neck. And she's dangling there, not knowing that if she had successfully hit the Night King, even with, what's the name of the steel again? I just forgot. Okay. What is it? Valyrian steel. Even if she, he still, it still wouldn't have killed him. That he has to be stabbed in the very place where he was turned into a, a white walker by dragon glass. And by turning her around and looking at her, he's accidentally exposed himself, makes her drop the knife. She catches the other hand Well. Good things happen if you haven't seen the show. And everyone around our living room went from no to yeah, we're running around screaming, high five, and we've got a group text with my extended family all over the country. We're going nuts. That's what happened, okay? They're putting their hands in his side. They're putting his, and this, this is really a bit really happened. The world is really being made right. And this leads, the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. That sounds an awful like the other Gospels, right? Nothing surprising there. What's surprising to the disciples, especially in the speed of time, that is Jesus immediately turns to them and doesn't just forgive them for being such idiots and then say, hey guys, I've gone to plan B. I've now entrusted this great commission thing to the 10,000 warrior angels, remember I told you about, that would have defended me? Well, I'm giving it to them. You guys are off the job, Right? If I was Jesus, that's what I would have done, right? You're fired. Instead, he recommissions them for the very same job that he's been training them for for three years that they failed at miserably. And again, Jesus said, peace be with you. I bet probably just to reassure them again. It's all right. Don't be afraid. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. In the same way I was sent from the heavens, empowered by the Holy Spirit, by my Heavenly Father, to bring the good news that the kingdom of God's love and justice was breaking into this present evil age. I'm sending you to proclaim the same thing and be part of it. Is that awesome? This is the Great Commission. This is the go-calling of the book of John. Even the message that John gives them is similar to the other Gospels. It doesn't seem so at first. In verse 23, it says, if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive their sins, they are not forgiven. Does that sound weird? I, we, Sue and I puzzled on that. She's the Old Testament scholar, the biblical scholar. I'm the theologian. We wrestled with it all week and realized as we started listening to it with some different scholars, say, it really isn't that weird. It just sounds weird. It's just a really strange 
Greek construction that doesn't translate very well into English. It, all it is is Jesus sent, is sending them forth to announce the forgiveness of God and not to create the forgiveness of God. It's, just, it's very similar to what he says in Luke in the Great Commission that Doug did last week. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. This repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then two weeks ago, what Doug talked about in the Great Commission, Mark, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, and whoever does not believe will be condemned. It's pretty much saying the same thing. New Testament scholar puts it this way, Merrill Tinney, and I quoted him just because I got a chance to study with him at Wheaton, and I didn't because I'm an idiot. So anyway, this, he says, this is the essence of salvation. All who proclaim the gospel are in effect forgiving or not forgiving sins, depending upon whether the hearer accepts or rejects the Lord Jesus as the sin bearer. So all this really, this kind of strange thing, it looks like it's said, uh, really is just... Just you saying to them, go forth and proclaim forgiveness. Now, as Doug mentioned last week, we can decide whether or not people feel like they need forgiveness today <laughs> or not. That, that's a definite issue. We have much more of a shame-based culture now than a guilt-based culture, and that's really sh- shifted over the last hundred years, where people are much more interested in their shame being taken away than their guilt being taken away. Uh, we have an incredibly shame, if you're a Brene Brown fan, and I am, we have an incredibly shame-based culture, and we need to learn probably how to preach the gospel better to a shame-based culture than to a guilt-based culture. But it's still the same idea. It's the love of God that overcomes the shame of people. It's the love of God that offers forgiveness to those who are covered with guilt. Still the same gospel, the same good news of a loving Heavenly Father that's breaking into this present evil age. But then the twist, then the weird thing, then the thing that's different from John than any of the other Gospels. It back, just back one in verse 22, after he's commissioned them, he says, and with that he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now this is new. Matthew, Mark, Luke, they've not mentioned the Holy Spirit in the Great Commission. Mark's mentioned the effects of the Holy Spirit coming, of co-laboring with the Spirit, the signs and wonders and powerful things that happen in the wake of the gospel. Uh, Luke has told them to wait from power from on high, but it doesn't come in his gospel. It comes in Acts at Pentecost. So what about John? What is the relationship between the coming of the Holy Spirit upon the disciples at Pentecost, which we're going to celebrate 50 days after the resurrection, on June 9th in our calendar today, discussed in Acts chapter 2, and the disciples receiving the Holy Spirit when Jesus breathed on them in John 20, on the night he was raised from the dead. Does that seem weird to you? Like something's out of whack, like the, the script writers got something wrong. I'm going back to Game of Thrones again, sorry. In the Bible, okay. Now, there are three basic ways that people talk about how this might work. One of them said, well, it's just a prophetic impartation. It's not actually, they don't actually receive the Holy Spirit. He's just saying to them, you are going to receive the Holy Spirit in 50 days. Does that seem likely to you from the text? Not particularly. Other people say, well, no, it's just an impartial impartation. He gives them a little bit of the Holy Spirit. Okay. That's hard to de- define what that might mean, though, though there definitely is something true to that. Or is it a promised impartation? Remember, the reason we're confused by 
How does John, what does John 20 have to do with Acts 2? Is because we've read John and we've read Acts. John was not writing his gospel to a people who had read the book of Acts. It wasn't the, it wasn't the next book that they were going to read. He was writing to his writers. He's probably, we just assume that he wrote his gospel later than the others. He lived longer than the disciples. He's the only disciple, at least tradition tells us, who died a natural death. He also probably started out younger than the other disciples. A lot of reasons he lived to be into his 90s. The other disciples were martyred much earlier. He's got a lot of time to think about this. He's had a lot of disciples who've kind of put together his writings to put together this gospel. But still, it's not connected to the book of Acts in any way as he's writing it, as the New Testament would come to be hundreds of years later. So he's trying to tell a complete story. So if he's trying to tell a complete story, we should be looking backwards, not forwards, to figure out what he's talking about. Does that make sense? We should be looking not forward to the book of Acts, which in our Bible is just a couple chapters later. We should be looking backwards to the book of John. What is he saying? And it turns out he says a lot about what's going on. What actually is promised in the book of John is the exact thing that Jesus is talking about in John 15 that Doug spent uh, Lent preaching through, and that's the promise of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. John 7, 38-39, Jesus said, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, the Old Testament has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. So people who believe have the rivers of the Holy Spirit, rivers of living water flowing through them. By this he meant the Spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not yet been given. Jesus had not yet been glorified. So here it is. He's saying that later in time, and now I'm going to assume later in the book, they're going to receive this promise of the indwelling Spirit that is promised in John chapter 7. Does that make sense? And we don't know when Jesus' full glorification was. Some people say it wasn't complete until his ascension. But he says, Mary, when he appears to Mary, don't hold on to me. I've not yet ascended to my father. And then when he comes and appears to the disciples later that day, they're allowed to touch him. So some element of the ascension, some element of his glorification has already taken place. Then John 14, 16 through 17 Jesus says in the same farewell discourse that John 15 came from, that Doug was preaching through at Lent, I will ask the Father, and he'll give you another advocate to help you to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. This advocate is the Holy Spirit. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. How is the Holy Spirit with them? The Holy Spirit's been upon Jesus who possesses it. John says the Holy Spirit without measure. And so the Holy Spirit's been with them in the person of Jesus, but now the same Spirit is going to come within them. That is what they're going to receive later in the context of the book of John. It's a culmination of of the major theme of the book of John, the work of the Holy Spirit, now it's been promised, and now it happens. He breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. This thing that's been promised is now happening. So what is it that's happening? It is most likely not the promise of Joel. 
the promise of Joel is something really amazing is going to happen. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit. And remember, they had no idea the Spirit as being a third member of the Trinity, right? It was just the hand of God, the voice of God, the breath of God, the part of God that does the things of God. That's what, that's what the Holy Spirit was. You didn't have the Holy Spirit come upon you to empower your speech or your actions unless you were a prophet, you were a priest, you were a king, or two exceptions, an artist. And they're the first ones mentioned, by the way, artists. Bezalel and Oholiab. But unless you're one of those special class of people, the Holy Spirit never comes upon you to empower you for your service. But Joel promises there will come a day when that empowering work of the Spirit will come upon all God's people. Men and women, rich and poor, slaves and free, everyone who believes that will have the empowerment of God for service. And that's what Peter quotes from Joel, from Joel chapter 2 at Pentecost. And the most likely thing is that that's exactly what's happening there. But that's probably not what's happening here. It's probably growing from a completely different promise found in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 37, 5 through 14 says, This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. This is when he's got his valley of dry bones and Ezekiel's going to prophesy to him. He says, I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will put my spirit in you, and you will live. So here's the spirit and breath together. There's a little hint, right? I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart of remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. That most likely what's happening in this moment is something that's very much akin to Genesis 2-7. Matter of fact, it's exactly the same phrase as used in Genesis 2-7. It's the only other place in the Bible that's used it. Remember, God had, when he created the first human being, he made them out of the ground and then took this ground creature and then breathed into it. Then the Lord God formed Adam, a human, from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and Adam became a living being. And there's absolutely no question that Jesus is, and John is referring back to what happened in this very beginning. The same way that humanity was created in this breath of God, the new humanity in this res- on the first day of the resurrected new world order of the kingdom of God breaking into the world is coming about because Jesus is breathing the spirit of God back into people. Does that make sense? Isn't that beautiful? So when he says, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you, and with that he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit, he's saying something magnificent. That sending, impartation of the Holy Spirit, sent or send, appears over 50 times throughout John's gospel. Most of the time it's about the Father sending Jesus or sending the Spirit But it's always to send on service with a commission. Like it's the word that's used for a messenger, an ambassador. It always implies two things. A task that's given and the ability to perform that task. You don't send your servant to the store to buy something unless you give them the cash to go buy it. That's what it means to be sent. Not just say go to the store, but go to the store, here's the cash. Here, go, go do the thing you want to do. And God never sends anyone on a mission without promising them the corresponding ability to perform it. Let me say that again. 
What we can learn from this is God never sends anyone on a mission without promising them the corresponding ability to perform it. God will never send you an assignment without sending, sending you with the resources you need to complete the assignment, the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit coming upon us for service as described in Acts 2 and happens at Pentecost. And the presence of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us for transformation as he's talking about in John 20. Now, how do you harmonize those two things? Honestly, I don't know. I mean, the scripture is full of times where God tells us two different takes on the same story, so we try to get a stereoscopic idea of what's going on because one telling of the story doesn't get you everything. There's two creation accounts, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. One is very much about God's power from on high and is transcendent. The other is very much about God's, God's presence with his people and his imminence with us. Just one story wouldn't be enough to get us everything that was really going on in these same set of events. Deuteronomy is a recapping of Exodus, Leviticus, and, and, Deuter- and Numbers. First Chronicles, First Kings, First Samuel, they're all telling the same story, but in different ways. Ezra, Nehemiah, telling the same story, but in different ways. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the same story in different ways. John, Matthew, Mark, and John, same story, but in different ways to see the full meaning of it. And my suspicion is what's happening here is John's telling us in a different way, so God gives us the full measure of what's happening that's connected to and yet somehow distinct from Pentecost. That God wants us to be indwelled and dwelt by his spirits, to have his presence with us, transforming us, that we could be a people where streams of living water flow forth from us to the people around us because God has breathed new life into us and that our life should be about being a breathing people. Lord, breath of life, breath of heaven, breathe on me again, breathe on me anew. God will never send you an assignment without sending you with the resources you need to complete that assignment, the Holy Spirit. What assignments does he have for you right now? That he's waiting you for not only to take up and say, Lord, I will do this this thing. Say, Lord, would you breathe on me so that in this situation, rivers of living water would flow through me into this difficult work situation, into this difficult child and this difficult commission to the poor, and this difficult call to another to change careers or to go across, go across uh, a cross-cultural divide to be able to bring the good news. That Jesus is reassuring them, peace be with you. If, if, you'll simply be willing. I will breathe upon you. You'll receive the Holy Spirit. And before it empowers you to go make a difference in others, it will transform you. My presence will go with you, and I'll give you rest. Can we pray?